And what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can follow our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook for the latest updates about uh, upcoming episodes. And you can listen to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So today, I've got a great episode for you guys. I'm obviously talking a lot about the Celtics. Game 5 tonight in San Francisco, Celtics and Warriors tied it at two games apiece. Also be talking uh, plenty about the Red Sox. They've been playing really well uh, fresh off their West Coast trip in which they went 8-2, and two, so we'll talk about that. Uh, plenty of other stuff as well. Um, before we get going, I would like to extend um, another thank you to everyone who submitted questions for the mailbag last week. That was a great episode. thought we got some great questions, so um, if you have not gotten a chance to listen, you can uh, do that on Apple Podcasts or um, on Spotify, whatever works for, for, for you. Um, I would like to announce that uh, this week on Guest Friday, I'll be talking with uh, one of my good friends, Brenna Keefe, um, who has spent the last two seasons um, being an assistant coach at um, Natick High School coaching um, softball. So really excited to, to talk with her later this week. That will be on Guest Friday on Friday, so really looking forward to that. So that being said, uh, let's jump right into it. Obviously, a, a huge basketball game tonight in San Francisco, Game 5 of the NBA Finals, Celtics and Warriors. It's been a great series so far. Uh, really exciting, you know, really full of twists and turns and all types of, you know, storylines on the court and off the court. Uh, whether that's, you know, a good thing or not kind of remains to be seen, I guess. But um, really been some good games, some great performances by by both teams. You know, I think that clearly we've seen Steph Curry playing at, you know, a very high level, perhaps the highest level he's ever played in his career. Um, you know, with the series that he's put together three games of 30-plus points, 43 in Game 4, um, to tie the series, you know, it's just been a, a series that he's been incredible. You know, I think that definitely there are some things the Celtics would like to do differently defensively, but I think at the same time, he's just a guy that can take over, and we've seen that. So, you know, and we saw it on full display in Game 4 on Friday night um, with the 43 points and the 10 rebounds, four or five assists, but, you know, really took over the game and... You know, thanks to the Celtics not playing great offensively, you know, kind of allowed Golden State to be able to get, you know, those opportunities to get back in the game. You know, I think that one of the storylines from Game 4, you know, obviously the turnovers for the Celtics, but I think also just a lot of empty possessions offensively. And I think, obviously, yes, it's easy to point at the end of the game where, you know, the Warriors took control of the game, but I also think that there were moments in the first half where the Celtics had huge opportunities to go ahead by more points and, you know, would turn the ball over, would take a bad shot, you know, things like that, where it's like you could have had some good separation at points in the first half, you know, and then obviously when the Celtics took the lead late in the game, five minutes left, 
you know, they kept going empty, you know, kept settling for jump shots and kind of going away from attacking the basket, which I think is always kind of a, a harbinger of, like, if they stop driving to the basket late in games, you know, it's probably not going to turn out well because they're just going to, you know, whoever holds on to the ball 15, 16 seconds, you pass it a couple times and you take a three and it just, you're not going to beat Golden State if that's how you're playing offense. You know, the Celtics have seen, we've seen in this series, that when the Celtics move the ball and they move it with purpose, you know, they can kind of get whatever they want. You know, and I'm not trying to say the Golden State's a bad defensive team, but it's like you've seen the Celtics get them in rotation and be able to get easy baskets and be able to, you know, get their offense going. And it's like that is kind of what's maddening about this series is the Celtics just kind of inexplicably go away from that sometimes, you know. And it's like you have to realize that, like, if Golden State's having trouble, you know, you get them in rotation and they're having trouble defending you, you don't stop. You know, you don't go away from something that's working. So, you know, that's going to kind of be one of the biggest things to look for tonight is how are the Celtics moving the ball, you know, and if they get a lead, can they extend it? You know, if they get a four or five point lead in the first quarter, can they extend it to eight points, to 10 points, to 12 points? You know, can they put themselves in a position where they're feeling comfortable, you know, going into the later stages of games. You know, I think that this might be a lot like game one, where you may have to, you know, withstand an avalanche um, of, of Golden State threes. But I also think, you know, this series, as, you know, the last three series for the Celtics have been, it's kind of been a different game every single series. You know, the one team wins a game, but then they don't come out with that intensity the next game. And obviously, we've seen it from the Celtics a couple times where they play really well or they get a win, and then they come out and play flat. You know, it's possible Golden State comes out like that. Um, I would be surprised because it's at home, and, you know, Golden State might have a feeling that, you know, they really shouldn't be in this series right now. You know, I think that if the Celtics play best of their ability, close the game out, game four, possibility this is the final game of the series. But, you know, I think that, yeah, Golden State's a team that I think you may have given them an opportunity to get back in the series. And, you know, one of the things that I think has kind of been missing with this Celtics team at times in the playoffs is putting teams away. You know, when you get an opportunity to put a team down, you put them down, you know, and I think Naturally, it's been an issue. You know, obviously, it's not been a huge issue in the other series because the Celtics have won them. But I think there's something about, you know, playing a team that, or, or the Warriors feeling like they stole a game. You know, and I also think it could also work the other way that, you know, the Celtics, in a way, stole game one. And then, you know, they come in and kind of expect to win the next game and they fall flat. You know, it could be that Golden State, you know, that happens, that they come in, they steal a game that they probably shouldn't have won, but then the Celtics rebound and take it. And I think we've seen it time and time again in these playoffs, you know, literally we've seen it every single time the Celtics lose a game 
they come back and win. You know, they're seven and zero after the losses this this postseason. So it is possible, but I think if they're going to win tonight, it starts with being more efficient on offense, and I think that's the biggest key tonight. Is yes, obviously you want to keep the turnovers down, and those are huge, but you know you want to play efficient offense. You don't want to be driving into crowds. You don't want to be you know, putting yourselves in position where, you know, you turn the ball over. And I think you just have to take good shots. Um, we didn't really see enough of that in game four. You know, I think that the Celtics are a team that they have to drive and they have to be aggressive and forceful, and that's how they're successful. Because I think, you know, and I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that I think there's a difference between just driving to the basket and kicking it out and forcefully driving to the basket with the intention of score with the intention of scoring but then also you have the option to kick it out and i think that you know it needs to be an obvious like forceful offensive game where the celtics are going to be like all right we're not going to mess around we're going to take it to the basket we're going to get to the free throw line we're going to make a concerted effort to you know take the game to golden state that you know sure Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, they can do what they do offensively, but we are going to take it to you offensively. You know, we're going to force you guys to foul us. We're going to force you to have to play hard defense. And I think when you have the mindset, the 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 mindset of being aggressive, the other team has to answer that. And that's the way the Celtics need to approach this game offensively is start the game on time, start the game aggressively, and be the team that Golden State has to come in and recognize that, okay, we have to play hard. You know, the Celtics are going to come in, they're going to play hard. We have to answer that. And so I think being the aggressor, being the first team that's the aggressor, you know, really setting the tone, not letting Golden State set the tone, and, you know, you having to keep up, you take it to them. And I think that that's the biggest thing for the Celtics' success tonight is be efficient offensively. And, you know, I think that a lot of us are – really hoping that Jason Tatum can put together a good, a really good game tonight and, you know, put the Celtics in position to be a win from a championship. Um, but I think that not only does Jason have to be at the top of his game, Jalen does too. And I think that I feel like at times in these finals, you know, each guy has had good runs of play at certain moments in the game. But I think that tonight you need the both of them to be the stars that we know that they are. You know, this is a, I think this is really a huge defining point in not only Jason's career, but Jalen's too. You know, the two of them together that I think clearly they have proven to us that they belong together and they work together and they can. But I think this is kind of the point where we want to see them truly do it and do it in the biggest stage, or do it on the biggest stage of their careers. And I think, yes, you want the other guys to be able to step up because you need Al Horford, you need Marcus Smart, you need Derek White, you need those guys to knock down shots when they get their opportunities. But I think this game, this night, is about the two Js and about their about their legacy, you know, and about what can they do on the biggest stage and you want them to be playing a full 48. That doesn't mean that they both have to score 
30, 40 points. That's not what it means. But I think both of them need to be engaged in the game offensively and defensively, you know, as leaders and as guys that, you know, everyone can kind of take a hint from that, you know, if the rest of the team sees the two of them, you know, taking it to another level and playing really hard, the other guys are going to follow. And I think as much as we want to talk about, you know, Marcus Smart, Al Horford kind of being the soul of the team, you know, backbone of the team, whatever you want to say, this is the night that Jalen and Jason have to take that leadership role, you know, that basically, you know, Al is kind of like the old teacher and he's like, hey, I've taught taught you guys all I can. Now it's your chance to go out and prove yourselves. And I think, I mean, what an opportunity tonight. And I think that, you know, the two of them have to embrace the opportunity and have to be great. Um, And I think that if you see the two of them playing at a high level tonight, there's no reason that they should lose. You know, I think so. It's got to be, it's got to be two great performances from the two of them, you know, similar to that game three where both of them scored, I think both of them scored like 26 or 27 points. You want to see both of them playing at high levels. Um, And again, it doesn't mean that one of them needs to score 40 points, but I think they need to be involved and need to be the guys that are driving, driving the bus, so to speak. Um, I will say, you know, one of the things that does concern me and has concerned me in this series is the fact that some of the Celtics bigs have not necessarily played smart defensively. And I think that obviously when you've seen Steph Curry make some shots, the Celtics, you know, for some reason will drop into drop coverage. And, you know, I don't know if that's a coaching thing or if it's just guys just lose focus, but I think clearly you think about Horford, you think about uh about Al Horford, think about Rob Williams, you know, even Grant Williams, you know, if they're out on the perimeter guarding a Steph Curry or a Clay Thompson, you have to be focused and you have to understand that you have to be up on them after they come off screens. And I think, you know, as much as Rob Williams, I thought played really excellent in the last two games in Boston, he's got to do a better job of being up on, up on guys after they come off screens. And Horford needs to do a better job of it too, because you know, those two guys, Curry and Thompson, you give them any space, they're going to shoot. And more often than not, they're going to make it. And I think as much as, yes, the two of them made some ridiculous shots in game four, you can't give them confidence. You have to close on them, you know, and look, they're going to make some shots because they're just amazing. And that's just what they do, but you can't let them get comfortable. And I think you saw too much of that in game four, you know, you let them get too comfortable, and then when the game really mattered, that's when they started, you know, knocking down shots. So I think the bigs have to be smart tonight. Um, you know, you really hope that Rob Williams can play big minutes because he kind of has the last two games played, I think, 26 in game three, and then played 31 minutes last game. So, you know, you want him to be smarter. You want Al to be smarter. You know, if Daniel Tice has to play minutes, you need him to be smarter. And I think, you know, obviously, ideally, you don't want Tice playing any minutes, but, you know, if someone gets into foul trouble, um, you know, that needs to be, you know, that point needs to get across to those guys. 
Um, you know, I think Grant Williams is also another player that, you know, maybe it's not defensively, but I think he's someone that needs to have an impact in this game. You know, I feel like too often in these playoffs, he gets into foul trouble and is not as effective as he is in games that they win. You know, you looked at game three and how well he played kind of down the stretch at the end of the third, early in the fourth. You know, he kind of gave them the ability to take back control of that game, but you barely saw him in game four. You know, it really seemed like he barely played any minutes because he had, you know, was in foul trouble the whole time. So you got to see some better minutes from him. Um, and then I think really just the final point of this game tonight is, you know, you keep having that road warrior mentality. You know, you have that mentality that it's us against the world, you know. And clearly that thought process has worked well because this Celtics have been really, really good on the road in these playoffs. I think that they've only lost maybe two or three games in the post. I mean, they're like eight and three or something on the road. Um, and so I think, you know, having that ability to be able to go on the road and, you know, have the confidence that you can win games is huge. You know, I think it's one of the reasons why they've gotten this far in the playoffs because they've been able to win some clutch road games. Um, you know, maybe they've gotten lucky in a couple of them, that's for sure. But I think just having the mentality that you can win on the road, you can win away from home has really helped them get, you know, deeper in the playoffs. Obviously, they need, they need to, you know, figure things out at home because they've dropped some games that they really shouldn't have dropped. But, you know, alas, here we are, game five, and it's a, a best of three. But I think based on how the Celtics have played on the road, you you should have some confidence that they could win a game, you know, or two in Golden State if they have to. Um, you know, game five tonight, game six Thursday, and then potentially a game seven next Sunday. So, you know, yeah, Celtics, unfortunately, don't have the home court in this best of three, but, you know, perhaps they've been the best road team in the playoffs. So, you know, they get another opportunity to show you tonight that they can be a great road team and, you know, show you again that they can uh, they can bounce back. You know, they've been the best bounce back team in the playoffs. They have not lost back-to-back -back games. So I think it gives you some confidence that they can fix things from a game-to-game -game basis. But I think they just have to play smart. You know, I think it's playing smart on defense, being efficient on offense, and, you know, letting your star players do what they do best. And I think that this is really a tremendous opportunity for Jason, but for Jalen too. You know, as, as I mentioned, it's a legacy game for the two of them. And I think they've, the two of them have gotten us to this point. So, you know, I feel confident that they can get it done tonight, but uh, we will see again game five tonight in San Francisco, 9 p.m. start. Yeah, those start times are, are really annoying, but it's all about all about making money, all about that viewership. So, not really much, not really much I can do there. But I think that's going to be it for the Celtics. Going to get on to talking about the Red Sox, who are uh, continuing to play excellent baseball. They've won eight out of ten um, on the West Coast road trips. They did really well, three out of four in Los Angeles against the Angels, and then two out of three this past weekend against Seattle with a huge win coming yesterday afternoon. Raphael Devers with the big home run. 
in eighth inning. Tanner Houck with the save in the ninth inning, and uh, Cutter Crawford with uh, probably the best pitching performance of his uh, Major League Baseball career. He pitched five innings, gave up one hit, struck out six, I think did walk four. He's had some issues with control this season, but a great win for the Red Sox, and you know, two out of three, and they just continue to win series, and I think that that's the biggest thing that we've seen over the last few weeks and months even, you know. You go back to when this team was 10 and 19 at one point, you know, 22 wins in their last 32, 18 wins in their last 25, you know, it's really been a tremendous run, and I think that, you know, yeah, it was easy to kind of bury them at that point, but, you know, I think that some of us had confidence that they would be able to figure it out. You know, the offense would be able to come through and the pitching staff's been pretty solid all year, but it's been especially dominant over the last 12, 13 games. I think their ERA is something around two, you know, which is pretty ridiculous when you look at the, you know, personnel that the Red Sox have in the staff. You know, not to say that, oh, it's not a good pitching rotation, but, you know, if you were to tell me at the beginning of the year that the Red Sox have a rotation of, you know, Ivaldi, Pavetta, Rich Hill, Michael Waka, and um, Garrett Whitlock. I wouldn't believe you if, if you said that their ERA would be that low, you know, over a considerable period of time. Um, but they've been excellent, and I think the offense has caught up. They're starting to get timely hits. You know, obviously, none more obvious than the home run yesterday by Devers, but, you know, big hits and big games in L.A., you know, winning a couple of one nothing games, getting some runs across, um, you know, winning a couple of extra inning games, um, or winning one extra inning game, you know, getting a win in Seattle Friday night in which they almost gave it away, you know, that unfortunately they give it away the next night. But I think timely offense, timely hitting, timely home runs. You know, you saw Bobby Dahlbeck hit a couple of home runs on this trip. Um, and it's good to see him get going. But I think, you know, him hitting home runs in huge spots, you know, hit a big home run on Friday night, hit a game, the go-ahead home run in the ninth inning on Saturday. Unfortunately, the Red Sox could close it out, but you're seeing key guys get key hits all over the lineup. And I think that that is really telling that you can see that they're starting to figure it out offensively. And, you know, as we've talked about the the top guys are going to be the top guys. Devers, Bogarts, J.D. Martinez, they're going to be doing their thing. But I think you're getting great contributions from everyone. You know, whether they're in the starting lineup, whether they come in off the bench, you're really seeing it, you're really seeing it start, starting to come together. Um, and I think just doing well on a West Coast road trip is always going to, is always going to be a huge plus for a team. And I think... Just the idea of going on the road 10 games, you know, you're going to have to bond with guys on the road, um, and it helps when you're winning. You know, clearly it helps when you go 8-2. and two. You know, it would be different if you went, you know, 3-7 and seven or something like that, but I think it's just bonding with the team, getting the team excited and confident, getting the team to get out of, you know, where they were a couple of weeks ago. And giving yourself the confidence to be like, hey, we can go anywhere and we can win games. Um, you know, certainly the teams that they played were not exactly the cream of the crop in the American League. But I think 
you know, anytime you can get a, a, a long trip or a long series of games and do well during that period, it's always going to be a positive no matter who it's against. Um, so, you know, again, the Red Sox do have an upcoming homestand, which we'll talk more about in a second, against a couple of teams that aren't too good. But I think just getting wins, getting wins in the manner that they have um, is really going to lend itself huge, you know, as we get closer toward, you know, the, the trade deadline, the stretch run in August, you know, and that's assuming the Red Sox can stay afloat like this. But I think it gives you a lot of confidence that, you can see this team go on the road for 10 games and come away with eight wins, um, you know, and losing only a couple of games in which, you know, you gave a game away, but then you also had another loss where Otani was just Otani, and there's not really much you can do against a guy like that. He's just unbelievable. He's just an unbelievable athlete to witness just with what he can do at the plate, what he can do on the mound. I mean, truly, we've never seen anything like this, you know? You could say that, okay, he's similar to Babe Ruth, but it's like none of us ever saw Babe Ruth play. None of us ever saw him play. So, you know, truly he's doing something that is so revolutionary that none of us have ever seen before. So, um, you know, he was a tremendous, tremendous joy to watch, even though it was against the Red Sox. But I think, you know, he's a guy that um, is just going to do great things for the game of baseball. So good on the Red Sox that they were able to win three out of four in Los Angeles, two out of three in Seattle. Uh, one of the negatives coming away from this trip, unfortunately, though, is the Red Sox will be shorthanded. Uh, Nathan Evaldi and Garrett Whitlock have both gone on the 15-day injured list. I think that Evaldi has, a, I think he has a back injury, yes is a back injury, and then Whitlock with a hip injury. So the Red Sox will have to get creative with the rotation um, in the next couple of weeks with both of them out. So, you know, it'll certainly test the rotation a little bit. You know, as clearly we've said, the rotation has been really excellent recently. Um, but I think it's going to be a lot of, you know, switching things around. You might see some guys um, up from Worcester, Josh Winkowski. I think you could see at some point this week. Um, but it looks like with the off day, the Red Sox would be able to go with uh, three of their usual starters for a three-game set against Oakland starting tomorrow night. I think it'll be like Pavetta, Hill, and Waka. So you'll get the three starters that are currently in the rotation. And then, you know, you'll see what they can do from there, which um, games they give to whom, you know, it could be interesting. They could give Cutter Crawford another start considering how well he pitched yesterday. So, you know, certainly it's not going to be great that the Red Sox will be without two of their better starters. But I think, you know, they have the depth to be able to stay afloat. And I think that's one of the things that I'm most interested to watch over the course of the next few months, you know, with Sale and uh, James Paxton returning at some point. Um, you know, curious to see what they do with those two guys. Do they start them in the bullpen? You know, do they bring up more guys from Worcester, get them, give them a look? You know, I think they're in a position where they are pretty deep pitching-wise. You know, obviously you still would like for them to add at the trade deadline considering how volatile their bullpen has been at times. But I think 
it's been a solid turnaround. It's been a great turnaround uh, for this team, you know, pitching-wise. I think pitching-wise, they've been great, you know, all season. But I think finally you're starting to see them not only hitting, not only driving in runs, but driving in runs at key times, which I think is the big reason why they've been able to turn things around um, and put themselves in a really good position um, at this point in the season. Um, so one of the things that I am interested to see with uh, the upcoming games is how can the Red Sox improve upon their home record, which is something that has not been not been the best. You know, I think that a pretty decent away record, 19 and 15, but 13 and 14 at Fenway Park. So hopefully that can improve. Uh, the Red Sox will welcome in three teams over the course of the next uh, over the course of the next two weeks or so. Um, as we said, they will play a series against Oakland this week and then they will welcome in the St. Louis Cardinals next weekend. Um, and then they will play the Tigers starting a week from today. So a perfect opportunity for the Red Sox to um, improve upon their home record against some teams that maybe are not the cream of the crop, you know, playing Oakland again, playing Detroit, you know, St. Louis will be interesting because they are a pretty good team. They're atop the National League Central at the moment. We'll take a look at the standings uh, later in the podcast, but I think that will be a good matchup for the Red Sox to see how they match up against one of the, one of the better teams in the National League, um, you know, and then you hope that they can take care of games that they'll be playing against some lesser opponents before they go out on the road again for a nine-game swing, Cleveland, Toronto, and Chicago, and that will be kind of toward the end of June into July. So I think, you know, speaking about their home record, you know, you wanted them to, you want them to be able to get some home cooking and be able to play well in front of the hometown fans who I think have put up with a lot at the beginning of the season, just considering how poorly they've played. But I think, you know, getting this opportunity to play some teams that aren't as good, you know, gives you an opportunity to build on the confidence that you've built on this West Coast trip. And I think, you know, hopefully give you an opportunity to try to make some headway in the division, although the, the Yankees are, are making things very, very difficult uh, considering how well they're playing. But I think hopefully get some home games, you come off this trip, you know, a big off day today, um, thanks to the travel. But, you know, hopefully they can kind of figure things out once they get back home, try to improve upon that home record, try to get further in the wild card chase. It's pretty remarkable the Red Sox are actually in the third uh, wild card position at the moment. There is an extra wild card team in this season as I think 12 teams um, into the playoffs, as opposed to 10 last year. I was part of the, uh, I think that that was part of the collective bargaining agreement that the players and union agreed, or the union and uh, the owners agreed to, to end the lockout. But, you know, good to see the Red Sox in playoff position. You know, hopefully they could improve upon the home record, you know, get up to where Toronto and Tampa Bay are so that they can make some headway in the wild card chase. I mean, I really think based on how the Yankees are playing, I don't really see that it's possible for the Red Sox to somehow catch them. But then again, it is June 13th. There's still, you know, over 100 games to be played. So 
you know, who knows, but it is good to see the Red Sox are at least in, you know, a playoff spot at the moment, a half game up on the Cleveland Guardians, but, you know, in a good, in a good position. So I think that being said, we'll move on, talk a little bit about the Bruins, who will return to uh, talk about some Major League Baseball, take a look at the standings a little further um, later in the podcast. We're going to jump into the Bruins, and obviously, you know, it was uh, not great timing with last week's podcast, you know, recording in the afternoon, and then the bombshell comes that Bruce Cassidy gets fired. Um, and, you know, obviously, I shared a lot of my thoughts on um, Guest Friday last week, because I got some uh, mailbag questions about that. So if you want to hear kind of my extended thoughts on the situation, you can go listen to that. You know, obviously, I can reiterate some of the things that I talked about is I was shocked. You know, it's definitely not it's definitely not the right thing to do. I think that that's pretty, pretty obvious from, you know, anyone that knows anything about the situation that clearly was not the right thing to do. You know, the Bruins can the Bruins can say anything they want about, you know, oh, this is really why the coach isn't here, you know, and I think that you can believe certain things, you can not believe certain things, but I do kind of think that there's something that's a little fishy that, you know, not everything is being reported, you know, that there might be some things that we don't know about that may have happened, you know, and obviously that's just speculation, you know, if you paid attention to my uh, my Twitter thread last week, I had a lot of thoughts um, about what I think may have happened behind the scenes, but then again, that's just speculation. That's not me, you know, making a proven report. It just was me kind of talking about what it felt like and just kind of how it felt strange that, you know, Bruins owner or Bruins, you know, upper management said that Cassidy's job was was safe and then a couple weeks later they fire him. So it's just something there that kind of doesn't really make sense. And, you know, some of the things that Sweeney said doesn't, you know, didn't really add up, you know, I think legitimately, you know, a player coach's message, you know, can kind of be an issue for players, you know, without players actually coming out and saying it. Um, but it definitely does seem strange that, you know, Sweeney was pretty emphatic that no, Bruce Cassidy did not lose the room, so to speak. But then it's like, you know, if, if you determine that the message is not getting through, you know, it just seems like a, a it just seems like a, an interesting, an interesting assumption to come to, an interesting point to come to that if the players aren't making it clearly obvious that, you know, oh, there needs to be a change or, you know, whatever. It just seems interesting that, you know, Sweeney made that decision that, okay, the guys aren't executing because the coach's message perhaps isn't getting through. You know, I don't know, obviously, the full story about that, but I think it is just kind of interesting, some of the things that Sweeney... Some, some, of, the, some of the things that Sweeney was talking about, you know, assuming, or, you know, basically trying to say that, like, they wanted, they maybe want a coach that's going to be a little more, or not as hard on the younger players, you know, and wanting to give young guys an opportunity. But then if that's the case, you know, why would they go out and sign Nosek or, or Felino or, you know, some of those older veterans where it's like, 
if you're serious about giving younger guys an opportunity, well, you know, why didn't you do it a year ago? So it just, things like that to me just don't really seem to add up. Um, and I do honestly think that ownership has a lot to do with this decision. And I think that money has a lot to do with it. You know, whether the Bruins are going to admit that or not, they probably won't ever, you know, clearly. But it just is just a, a strange situation and just something that I think you're seeing ownership or, you know, whoever runs the organization identifying the wrong issue, you know, and that kind of seems to be a common denominator of this team in the last couple of years that, you know, we come into an offseason, you try to identify something, but you identify the wrong thing, you know, and so it's just, it's just an unfortunate situation. And just at the end of the day, it sucks for Bruce because he seemed like a great guy, you know, he seemed like a guy who was really popular with, with fans and media, you know, although this is something I talked about on Guest Friday that, you know, it is possible that he's popular with fans and media, but maybe he wasn't as popular with the players, you know, not to the point that the players would say, oh, we hate playing for this guy. But I think, you know, maybe his message delivery did get stale over time. Um, but again, it's just, it's hard to know. Um, so in terms of looking at coaching um, replacements, you know, obviously that um, the coaching search has, has, has started you know, clearly. And I think the Bruins probably would like to, you know, find someone to hire very soon, you know, before the draft, before free agency. So, you know, the Bruins can, can make kind of the necessary moves. They can kind of get going with what the team is going to look like next season, you know, including figuring out what Patrice Bergeron wants to do, if he wants to play or if he wants to retire. Um, but I think they would probably like to get a coach and figure that out at some point, you know, I think you, the, the longer it goes on, the more concerned I would be. Um, but I think that, yeah, taking a look at uh, coaching replacements, you know, I think Jay Leach, the former uh, head coach in Providence, who was uh, an assistant with Seattle this past season, is probably, you know, the best candidate. And I would agree, you know, I think that he can help, you know, work with the younger guys. He's familiar with the organization, undoubtedly familiar with a lot of guys. Um, but I think he also would be a great coach to facilitate kind of that next wave of Bruins talent, you know, and moving on from kind of the old guard of Bergeron Martian. And that's not to say that, oh, you know, they need to move on from those guys, not what I'm saying. But I think having a coach that's going to be able to facilitate the next wave of, of talent. And I think Having a coach who, you know, is going to be okay with dealing with next season, which probably isn't going to go very well, considering, you know, a lot of the recovery time for um, the guys coming back from surgery um, and, you know, hiring a coach who, you know, may have to understand that, okay, best case scenario, you're probably a seven or an eight seed in the playoffs. You're probably, you know, near the bottom of you know, the playoffs if you even make it. Um, and so I think that's why I think Leach is probably the best hire, you know, Nate Lehman from, from Providence, I think would also be a similar type coach. Um, you know, obviously doesn't have the familiarity with the organization, but I think there might be something to the effect of hiring someone from outside the organization who can kind of give you, you know, a fresh set of eyes on the roster. Uh, but it's like, honestly, coaching is not the issue. 
with this team, unfortunately. You know, I think that the Bruins ownership and upper management kind of want to make it seem that way, that, you know, coaching was the problem. I mean, we all know it's not, you know, we're not, we're not stupid, <laughs> uh, but it's like, you know, I think someone like Lehman would probably be along the same lines as someone who you want to have here to facilitate the next wave of talent. You know, and I think that that kind of leads me to believe that they are going to, you know, look at a coach with, you know, not maybe not as much coaching experience, um, if that makes sense. You know, someone that's going to be a good coach for developing young talent. Um, and I think that that needs to be the priority, in my opinion. That needs to be the priority over trying to make the playoffs. And I know that that's going to sound... That's going to sound dumb to some people, but I think you look at this roster, you look at how it's constructed, it might, you might be better off as just get the, getting the young talent in, getting them some run and Hey, you know, if you're not a good team, you're not a good team, but I think they have the pieces that they can be a good team in the next few years. You know, McAvoy is still going to be here. Pasternak probably is still going to be here. If you can get him signed to an extension, you know, you're still going to have Lindholm. You're still going to have, Jeremy Swayman, you know, you're still going to have some other, you know, offensive players, you know, Marshan's probably still going to be here. Taylor Hall is probably still going to be here. So you still have some pieces. Um, so that will kind of be interesting to see, but I hope that that's what the priority is, is to get a coach that's going to facilitate the next wave of talent. Um, so I think Jim Montgomery also is within that same vein, former uh, University of Denver head coach um, who coached the Stars for a few seasons um, then had to step away um, after he was dealing with alcoholism. So if the Bruins hired him, I think that that would be a great story, giving him another opportunity to coach at the NHL level. Um, you know, David Quinn's name has also been brought up. You know, I think that that name is kind of a, a it's kind of a lightning rod for, for some people that you know, did not like necessarily what he did with the Rangers. But at the end of the day, he did oversee the, you know, development of some of the young players. And, you know, they did really, really well in the Rangers playoff playoff run. So, you know, there could be something to be said, said for, you know, if the Bruins are going to go through a couple seasons where it's going to be challenging, you know, maybe he's not the, the, the wrong coach, to, the wrong guy to hire. And, I'll be honest, I don't think he's as bad as some people think. Um, and there's some familiarity there. You know, we coach Grizzly and McAvoy. So, you know, you could see them going in that direction too. Um, Barry Trotz is not someone that I think they should hire. And really, if they do hire him, it would make the firing of Bruce Cassidy look really, really stupid and pointless. Um, so I don't really want to go there, but I think that they have to identify that the right direction for this team is to get the young guys more ice time. And look, again, it's going to be hard for some people to hear, but developing the young guys, emphasizing the youth is more important than competing for a playoff spot. That's just, that's just what I think is going to be best for this team um, because I think they just have to be realistic about the personnel that they have on the team and look with all the guys coming back from surgery you know 
you're probably not going to be too good in the first couple of months, and it's going to take some time for some of those guys to get back. And I think that, you know, sure, you could move around some salary this offseason. You could try to bring in some reinforcements. But I think, you know, emphasizing the youth is going to be the best thing to do. And I think that's that has to be the plan, regardless of what Bergeron decides. Um, it just kind of has to be. And I think, look, if Bergeron wants to be here and he wants to play, then that's fine. But I think that you can't change your offseason plan as a franchise for one player. You just can't do that. And I think I know people would say, oh, you know, Bergeron's back. You have to get everyone back together. But it's like, you have to be realistic about this team and this team's chances. Because honestly, like, this team, this group, the core, the structure, or whatever group they have right now, it's probably not going to get marketably better before the start of next season. Like, I have a hard time believing that's what's going to happen. You know, they're probably not going to sign someone like Giroux or Kadri or, you know, a big-name free agent. They're probably not going to be able to do that. So I think, you know, you kind of have to find a bit of a balance uh, with whoever you hire that, you know, is going to get the vets ready to go, but also will give the younger guys more of an opportunity and hopefully a fresh voice, you know, helps this team. So going to be interesting to see what uh, the coaching hire, what the decision is, and kind of the, the, the direction. So uh, one of the things that I was curious about is how the Bruins are going to approach the defense this season, because clearly, you know, you're going to be without Grizzlick, you're going to be without McAvoy for a good chunk of the early part of the season. And so I think it'll be kind of interesting to look at what they're going to do with the defense, because I do think this offseason someone could get traded. You know, I think someone like Mike Riley could get moved because they think, you know, where he was at the end of the season, he was kind of a plug-and-play guy. Um, but obviously with the injuries, he might get an opportunity to play. But I think you have Zaboral, who you just signed. He was playing really excellent uh, before he got hurt. And so you could say, okay, we want to give him an opportunity, and Riley might be the odd man out. They could also have the same thought process with Connor Clifton. Um, but he considering, you know, it, it's difficult because he did play really, really well toward the end of the season, and, you know, teams could be interested about him. You can easily trade him. He's only making a million dollars next season as a free agent after that, and so I think, you know, the Bruins could trade one of those guys. You know, Riley obviously does have, like, an ankle surgery that he is recovering from, but he should be ready for training camp. Um so that could play into it, but I think you are likely going to see one of those guys getting traded uh, this summer, and I think it's going to happen regardless of McAvoy and Grizzly's status, but I think, you know, you're probably looking at, you know, if you trade Riley or Clifton, you're looking at Lindholm and Carlo playing that top pair, you know, looking at someone like Zaboral and, and Clifton perhaps playing in that second pair, and then you have well, who knows? You know, it could get interesting. Um, the Bruins could be less likely to trade a defenseman, but I think if the Bruins want to get some of that value back in the draft, they might want to trade someone like Riley or Clifton that maybe they could get a draft pick um, at some point. So that's something to watch. You know, I don't... Again, I don't think the Bruins are going to be doing anything major in free agency, but I guess if they traded Riley or Clifton... There could be a possibility that they could go out and sign 
you know, a cheap guy on a one-year deal making less than a million just to plug in there if, you know, you decide to trade one of those guys. So it'll be interesting to see what the Bruins do and you know, how they approach that area of the roster um, as they get closer to, you know, the draft and free agency because it is absolutely legitimate that the Bruins could, you know, move someone like Riley at the draft or someone like Clifton, or you could even move someone like DeBrusque, who I think would probably give you more value than both of those guys at the moment. But, you know, he could, I guess, choose to stick around, but we've not really heard anything to the contrary. We've not really, you know, heard anything that he does want to stay. I mean, I think the trade request is still is still there, so the Bruins still could move. DeBrusque and move, you know, Riley or Clifton, get a couple draft picks, um, and and also, you know, free up some money too. I think, you know, that's a possibility that if the Bruins want to, you know, drastically improve a certain area of the roster, they're going to have to clear out some salary. You know, I think they're going to have to do it anyway, because they only have, you know, a little under two and a half million dollars uh, to spend. So it almost seems like they have to you know, trade someone, they have to move some salary um, so that they can sign a couple of free agents. So I think we'll move on, talk about the Revolution, who had a huge win yesterday in Kansas City. It was a hot one. It was a humid one. There were uh, four hydration breaks during the game, uh, two in each half. It was like 86 degrees, felt like 97. Can't even imagine playing a sport. Uh, in that type of heat, but the Revs did come out with a win. A great showing from Gustavo Bo, who really seemed to be seemed to be really fit in this game and looked really, really strong. Got a goal off a great feed from uh, Dylan Barrero, one of the new guys on the Revs um, from from Colombia, I believe. Or I believe he's from Colombia. Um, beautiful setup. The Revs get the early lead. You know, unfortunately, gave up the lead on a on a great uh, free kick by um, Sporting Kansas City, but then the Revs did get a late winner thanks to uh, Ima Boateng, who finished a kind of an kind of an awkward play. It was a, a rebound off of a bow shot, but he got it to go in, willed it in, and the Revs got a huge win, two one. You know, it just seems like finally they were able to get a win after scoring late, being able to hold on to the lead and get the three points because I think that's crucial for this team as they, you know, did not start the season the way that they wanted to. But I think getting three points in games like that are huge. And I think you want this team to continue to improve. And I think, you know, if they're going to lose some personnel in the next few weeks, you want them to be playing at a, at a competitive level, being able to get points, being able to, you know, continue to climb up those standings. So a uh, great win for the Revs, you know, obviously. There were some lineup choices that were a little frustrating. You know, I really don't understand Bruce Arena's insistence on, on playing Omar Gonzalez, but, you know, it happened, um, obviously. Or unfortunately, Gonzalez actually did have to leave the game uh, with... It was kind of unclear. I think they were speculating that it could have been a, a type of head injury, which is a little concerning because Omar has a career of 
uh, of head injuries, but you know the Revs bring in John Bell played really well in that second half, um, and the Revs were able to get a win. But I think you know trying to get some continuity with some guys who are hurt, trying to get them back in the lineup. You know Kessler couldn't play last game, Legette couldn't play, um, but I think the Revs need to get that continuity because you know clearly they're losing Buxa, um, you know, hurts them offensively. Uh, it'll be curious to see how they choose to address that. So uh, Buxa signed a, or uh, is choose, or the team, <laughs> a team in France uh, paid the revolution um, $10 million to bring Buxa over there. So um, that is kind of how it works in soccer that, you know, they're different there is something called a transfer window, which is essentially, you know, similar to like a free agency. So, you know, trying to figure out something that would make sense. So like, for example, we'll use a hockey example. Um, David Krejci uh, played in the Czech League this past year. Um, so in soccer terms, it would be like the equivalent of the team that Krejci played for you know, making an offer to the Bruins and saying, oh, you know, we'll pay, we'll pay you $10 million if, you know, if Pasternak comes in place for our team. Um, so that's kind of how it works in soccer, where a team can say, oh, you know, we'll give your team a certain amount of money if this player can come and play for us. Um, so that's basically what happened with Buxa, you know, considering how well he's played in MLS, it got some other teams' attention and got this team in uh, France's attention, and so they paid $10 million to bring over Buxa, so now the Revolution have that money that they can use to sign another player, so that's kind of how it works in soccer, and that's how it works in every other league, I'm pretty sure, so, you know, it's too bad, because Buxa was a tremendous player for the Revs in his time here, you know, was an unbelievable goal scorer last season and this season, so uh, the Revs definitely have some shoes to fill, um, so I think, you know, you're looking for guys like Barrero, the new guy. You know, you're looking for Bo, um, Legette, when he comes back and he's healthy. You want those guys to be able to score. You know, Josie Altador, too. You know, I think they were kind of not sure about Buxa this season, I think, just considering how well he was playing. Um, and so I think that was why they went out and signed a Josie Altador. So, you know, they could have him ready once you know, Buxa left if that happened. And so I think, obviously, that's another guy that you're going to want to see put, you know, put shots in the net. So I think, you know, that's a tough departure. Matt Turner is also a tough departure. He'll be leaving for uh, for Arsenal in the Premier League in a couple of weeks. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a more difficult uh, player to replace, so to speak. I think Turner just was so good in his last couple of years with the Revs, you know, really put it all together last season, winning goalkeeper of the year um, and all that. So I think, you know, having a replacement already, you know, Georgie Petrovich, um, you know, kind of don't know what to expect. You know, he seemed to play pretty well yesterday, really had no chance on the free kick goal that was scored um, in the second half, but I thought that he played pretty well, had a couple of saves, um, but I think you know, it kind of will be, will, it'll remain to be seen what he can do um, as the Revs goaltender going forward. 
Um, but it is a huge opportunity for him. It's a huge opportunity for, you know, some of the young forwards like Rivera and Renix, who, you know, likely will get some opportunities to be able to show what they can do. You know, clearly the Revs are going to be, hopefully, you know, relying on guys like Altidore and Bo to score goals. But I think, you know, also it gives an opportunity to some of the younger guys you know, should one of those guys have, you know, injuries. I mean, obviously, Gustavo Boas had some some injury issues throughout his Revs career, and, you know, Altidore is getting up there in age. So there could be opportunities for, you know, Rivera and Rennix to get some to get some starts here and there, you know, if the other guys aren't able to go. So we'll take a look at the upcoming schedule for the Revolution. It is kind of a busy next couple of weeks the revs will play three mls or two mls games this week i should say the revs will host orlando city on wednesday night at 7 30 and then the revs will host minnesota united on sunday night so the revs will get two home games two games and an opportunity to get uh, closer in the major league soccer standings the revs have 19 points they're currently tied with um, FC Cincinnati for the last playoff spot in the Eastern Conference. So the good news is the Rebs are putting up points, um, but they got to continue to keep it going. Rebs will play Orlando Wednesday night at Gillette, 7.30 start time. So I think that's going to do it for uh, the New England sports. You know, honestly, there's not a whole lot of Patriot stuff to get to. I mean, obviously, we've heard a lot about mini mini camp and things like that, but you know, from, from what we've heard, it's pretty positive uh, with Mac Jones. You know, got a great question uh, from Ben Baptiste last week on the mailbag. So that was great to see. So um, obviously we'll, you know, count it down as the Patriots get closer to training camp. And, you know, if there are any other personnel moves that come up, whether it's, you know, signing the, the draft picks or maybe they sign a a player that, you know, gets released. It'll be interesting to see what happens there, but we'll keep you updated with Patriot stuff um, over the next few weeks as we get closer to training camp. So obviously the uh, big news outside of Boston sports, uh, the Stanley Cup final will start on Wednesday night in Colorado. The Avalanche will take on the Tampa Bay Lightning, who just beat the Rangers in the Eastern Conference final. Um, in game six, they had won four straight games in that series. And, you know, Tampa Bay is Tampa Bay, and they uh, they know how to win this time of year. And I think that I kind of thought this was going to happen. I thought that there really was not a team in the Eastern Conference that I really was bullish about, you know, going forward. I really didn't think that there truly was a team in the East that could beat Tampa Bay. And that's kind of what happened. I don't want to you know, to my own horn here, but I totally saw that coming. Um, but I will just say a tremendous uh, series by the Rangers, a tremendous playoff run for them. I mean, really, honestly, I think going forward for that franchise, it's really, really solid. You know, I think that there are a lot of guys that got really valuable playoff experience. Um, you know, Ryan Lindgren is someone who impressed me a lot. You know, obviously it was a former Bruins draft pick, so that hurts a little bit, but just looking at how well he played, how well Keandre Miller played, 
um, two young defensemen who have really, really bright futures um, in the NHL. Um, the kid line, you know, how could Lafreniere, Heedle, and um, Capococco were at times for that team, um, a tremendous playoff run for that team. And yeah, they're probably going to be back here um, in the next few years. But uh, Tampa Bay doing what a tid best and Colorado here, you know, waiting at least a week for their opponent to be decided. So it's going to be a great series, you know, two teams that I think legitimately are, in my opinion, the two best teams in the NHL um, this season. I think that Colorado did exactly what they should have done in the last couple of postseasons, you know, breezing through the playoffs. But I think that they're just such a deep offensive team. They're really good defensively. You know, goaltending, that's kind of the one area that I'm not sure about and which could, you know, tip the scales in Tampa Bay's favor because Vasilevsky is... You know, just Vasilevsky, and he's unbelievable in the playoffs. Um, you know, not sure about Darcy Kemper's health. Uh, Pavel Francouz, the uh, backup, played, you know, admirably well in his absence. But I think goaltending is the one area where I think Tampa Bay has a tremendous advantage. You know, I think forwards, in terms of what they can do scoring-wise, it's pretty even. You know, I think that Tampa Bay may have a slight edge defensively. Um you know, as, as in terms of defensive defensemen, you know, obviously we know what Kale McCarr can do for, for Colorado, but, you know, Tampa Bay is a really tough team to score on. Um, but Colorado is a team that they're really scary with what they can do um, on the offensive side. So I'm very curious to see how this series goes. I really think that either of these teams have a great chance to win. You know, this is not a series where you're going into it, okay, this team should win. This team should win. It's going to be a great series. I think it's great for the NHL that, you know, in the, the year of the new broadcast deals that you're getting a matchup like this in that first year because I think it really makes it interesting for, you know, not only hockey fans but casual fans too that they can tune to it and be like, oh, well, you know, this is on ABC. It's the same channel that the NBA Finals are on. You know, I think that it it's just going to be great. You know, I think the ratings so far have been really good in the playoffs, and I think hopefully it continues um, in the final. But I think it's just a great matchup to have in the first season of these, you know, of the different um, or of the change of the broadcast deals. So all these games will be on ABC. Game one in Colorado is on Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. I think just in this series, who do you pick? Well, it's hard for me to not pick Tampa Bay, but I do think Colorado wins this year. I just think that they're too deep. Um, I think they might have some issues in the first couple of games, just kind of getting into the swing of things after being off for so long. That was kind of an issue for the Bruins. That's actually funny because I thought of that this morning, that the Bruins in 2019, because they swept Carolina, they were waiting a very long period of time before playing St. Louis. Same thing with Colorado. You know, they swept the conference final. Tampa Bay and, and, and the Rangers go to six, and Colorado's here waiting. So that'll be interesting to see what happens um, in the first couple of games. But I do think Colorado wins. I think it's going to be in six. I think it's going to be a great series. Hopefully we get a series-winning overtime goal. That always makes it awesome. Um, 
But I think you're going to see some great hockey, two teams that, in my opinion, are the best teams in the league. So uh, you're, you are going to be in for a treat if you're into uh, playoff hockey. So that will do it for, for Stanley Cup playoffs. We'll take a look at the uh, at Major League Baseball, just some notes. The uh, Orioles owner made a comment that they uh, are not planning to leave. Uh, Baltimore, you know, obviously got the news about Evaldi being put on the injured list. Uh, the Dodgers, Walker Bueller, will be out six to eight weeks with an elbow strain. Um, Jared Walsh goes for the cycle for the Angels, and Mike Trout hit two home runs in his return to the lineup. So we'll take a look at the standings really quickly. Uh, the Yankees, obviously, playing at the best rate of any team in baseball, um, you know, the, the run differential, just a ridiculous number, plus 127, which is, you know, by far the best no, best number in uh, the American League. The Dodgers are next best with a plus 106 run differential. Um, you know, the Yankees are blowing teams out. They beat the Cubs 18-4 to yesterday, so... They just keep on winning. 44 and 16 is their record, which is just ridiculous at this point in the year. Um, and their lead over Toronto in second place is eight and a half games. The Red Sox are 12 and a half back in fourth place in the AL East, in the AL Central. Minnesota leads the division by three games. They are 35 and 27, three games over second place Cleveland. In the Nation in the American League West. Houston still leads an eight-and-a-half game lead over second-place Texas in the National League. The Mets have the best record in the National League, five-and-a-half games up on second-place Atlanta. Atlanta's won 11 in a row, so they are get back, getting, getting back into contention. Uh, but the Mets still lead the division by five-and-a-half games. Uh, the Cardinals, as we mentioned, will come to Fenway this weekend. They have a half-game lead over the Brewers for first place in the National League Central. In the West, the Dodgers with a half-game lead over the Padres. In the National League West, take a look at the wild card. As we mentioned, the Red Sox in that third position. Uh, Toronto is in the first position, and Tampa Bay is in second. The Red Sox are three and a half back of Tampa Bay, four back of Toronto, and then a half-game ahead of Cleveland. In the National League, the Padres are the top position in the wild card, followed by the Giants and the Braves and the Brewers, a half game back in the wild card there. So we'll take a look quickly at some NBA notes. Zion Williamson's name was in the news a couple of days ago, said that um, he does intend to be in New Orleans. He says he does want to be here. Very curious to see what that team looks like uh, next year. You know, definitely had a surprise playoff run without him, but I think they're truly building something really positive down there. So I'm curious to see what goes on next season for them. Um, it was reported a couple of days ago that uh, current Warriors assistant coach Kenny Atkinson will be the new head coach of the Charlotte Hornets. So I'll probably see that happen after the finals. So curious to see what the Hornets look like as they fired uh, James Borrego after a couple of seasons a couple of weeks ago. So curious to see how that team looks. Um, and then, as we mentioned, the Pelicans, uh, Brandon Ingram, recovering from finger surgery.
So just before we go, I'll take a look at some um, NFL notes. Lamar Jackson rejoining the Ravens for the first time this offseason. He's been away from the team with, you know, assuming it's some, some contract issues. Uh, Terry McLaurin will skip minicamp for the uh, Washington Commanders as he looks for a new deal. And uh, it is reported that Jordan Poyer for the Bills will attend their minicamp. So I think that's gonna, I think that's gonna do it for for, for me this week. Um, you know, obviously, looking forward to this week's guest Friday talking with uh, Brenna Keefe. That will be really really fun. We'll take a take a look at her a uh, couple of years with the uh, Natick softball team. So very excited um, to talk with her. So um, as always, you guys can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. You can follow the social pages on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, everyone enjoy the nice weather this week. Stay cool because it's going to be hot and humid. feel like I'm doing a weather report here, but um, everyone enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll be back with you guys on Friday.